Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 13th of December, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, Charles Mallet. Welcome to the programme, Charles. Thank you very much, Mike. Uh, and Vanessa Bailey is joining from Damascus via video link. Uh, so let's start off with uh, the events in Parliament yesterday, the safety of Rwanda bill. Uh, this was passed to the next stage, according to Number 10 Downing Street. They're very excited uh, because uh, they... Uh, won the vote by 313 votes to 269. Uh, quite a number of uh, Tory uh, members of parliament abstained from this. Uh, Suella Braverman, of course, as we would expect. Uh, Theo Clark, Sarah Dines, Richard Drax, uh, Tobias Elwood, uh, Marc Francois, and so on down the list. Quite a number abstained. Uh, and uh, well, let's just have a look at the announcement of the vote just for comedy value. The eyes to the right, 313. The nose to the left, 269. I think that explains a lot. It's a bit pathetic. But anyway, uh, uh, this was uh, the news that was hitting the the Twitter sphere earlier today, the fact that uh, Rishi Sunak was so uh, concerned about whether he was going to pass the vote or not, that he had to fly the uh, climate minister, Graham Stewart, back from the COP28 conference in Dubai uh, just to, to take part in the vote. He was so uncertain of the situation. But look, the question is, um, what is this going to do for migration? And I'm going to suggest it's going to do absolutely nothing. It's not going to prevent any migration. Uh, and uh, there are several reasons for saying this, because there is a bigger agenda or a different agenda at work here. Uh, first of thing that is uh, absolutely on the agenda is uh, the Human Rights Act, uh, right, uh, the Human Rights Act, but also uh, a modern Bill of Rights uh, and removing Britain from the European Convention on Human Rights uh, and therefore the, uh, the Court of uh, uh, Human Rights as well. So this has been an ongoing thing pretty much since 2010 when David Cameron became Prime Minister. Uh, the uh, UK government has been very, very keen to get reform of, of rights in this country. And of course, this isn't just rights for immigrants, this is rights for everybody and the immigration issue being uh, used as a, a mechanism for driving that. Uh, this was uh, Neil Hamilton uh, tweeting this out this morning. Sunak must exit the European Convention on Human Rights as the very minimum uh, and send the boat people back to France. That is uh, uh, not just a Tory thing, obviously, this is something that's being uh, pushed very hard by a number of uh, voices. But the other reason that uh, this isn't going to do anything for immigration, and actually this government has anyth hasn't has uh, any uh, desire to do anything about immigration, is because the amount of money that's being made, for made from it, and of course, human slavery being part of that. So let's br just bring a couple of graphs on screen here. Uh, this is the profit that's made from modern slavery, uh, £120 billion pounds or so a year. Uh, and on the right-hand side there, you can see the amount of money that the government puts into uh, funding prevention of modern slavery. Now, uh, it might seem that that is zero. Actually, it's not zero. It's just a very small amount of money. And by comparison with the profit that's made by modern, through modern slavery, it's relatively small. So this is the cost of doing business, as it were. If we uh, drill down onto sexual slavery in particular, uh, this is the amount of profit that's made uh, in the UK through sexual exploitation. And okay, there's a little bit more money as a proportion uh, from government in order to prevent sexual exploitation in the UK, but still 
a massively small amount of money. Uh, and if we look at uh, modern slavery referrals, well, uh, what we have here is a graph showing the relative number of referrals to the National Crime Agency uh, for domestic servitude, for, the, for people going into uh, labor, uh, for organ harvesting. Well, they say that that's zero, uh, but I think I've commented on this before that I don't believe a word of that. Uh, but sexual uh, slavery is, and sexual um, crimes are definitely the biggest proportion of uh, modern-day slavery referrals. Um, the next graph graphic really puts it in perspective here, because if we overlay it with red bars, uh, the red bars show the number of people being referred to the National Crime Agency who are under the age of 17. Um, and so we can see uh, that that, again, stays with the sexual slavery and the sexual exploitation um, graphic there being the biggest proportion. I think that's quite a staggering statistic. I would agree, Mike. I, I think it's, um, it, it really is. Um, and it, it just makes it look like this whole exercise is nothing more than an electioneering gambit. Yes, indeed. So uh, let's have a look at the safety of Rwanda bill itself and look at what they are um, Charles has provided these, so thank you very much for this. Uh, on the title page, cleverly, the, the Home Secretary is stating that the bill is not compatible with the European Convention of Human Rights, so they're absolutely doubling down on this, but he wishes the House to proceed anyway. The bill states that the government of Rwanda has agreed that any persons relocated to Rwanda may not be removed except to the UK. So the government of Rwanda will not remove anybody that's sent to Rwanda from Rwanda to any other country unless they accept back to the United Kingdom again. Of course, that doesn't uh, preclude people disappearing from the system in Rwanda as they have disappeared from the system in the UK as well. Uh, that, that relocated individuals are to be treated equally. Uh, that relocated individuals are to be provided with legal aid for protection claims and appeals. Um, a court or tribunal may not contest the fact that Rwanda is regarded as a safe country. So this is an effort to uh, override the Supreme Court and any other court in the UK. Um, and uh, the passing of the bill necessitates several what they're calling disapplications of the Human Rights Act 1998. So this isn't just about the uh, European Convention of Human Rights. This is also about domestic human rights legislation as well. Uh, and the overall purpose of the bill is to prevent and deter unlawful migration by sending migrants to Rwanda, uh, positing that Rwanda must be simultaneously viewed as a deterrent yet also a safe country. And of course, it's not going to do that at all. So uh, it's a pretty cynical attempt, it seems to me, to try to deal with uh, what is likely to be a fairly major part of the forthcoming general election. Um, and uh, uh, it's not going to work. It's not going to do anything to, to reduce uh, migration, but it is going to do a lot to um, pursue other policy areas, in my opinion. Um, let's move on to uh, Gaza uh, and the United Nations. Uh, and the UN held, the General Assembly held a vote uh, uh, on whether to demand a ceasefire from Israel. Uh, and that vote was won significantly. So 153 countries in favor, 10 countries against, 23 abstentions. So let's look at the actual statistics. Uh, we see the usual suspects voting against, so the United States uh, and, and so on. Israel, of course. Uh, the Czech Republic, Austria voted against, the UK abstained as they usually do. Um, the Israeli uh, permanent representative wasn't terribly impressed whenever this uh, vote passed. Um, he had this to say, uh, not only does this resolution fail to condemn Hamas for crimes against humanity, it does not mention Hamas at all. This will only prolong the death 
and destruction uh, in the region. Uh, that's precisely what a ceasefire means. So uh, what was interesting about this vote was there were two amendments, two attempted amendments to it, which both failed to pass. And the two attempted amendments did mention Hamas. Uh, so basically 100 and whatever number of 50 countries in the world were not prepared to uh, bring Hamas into this. This is just simply uh, a demand for a ceasefire. So Vanessa, let me welcome you to the program uh, and just briefly your thoughts on that. And then we'll move on to the Hezbollah situation. Well, I think what it does is demonstrate that, that, you know, the US is effectively voting against peace. The UK is abstaining, as we know, to prevent the veto system being uh, dismantled. And yet when there is no veto system, look what happened. So without the UN Security Council veto system, which is abused by the US and the UK, we would have had a ceasefire from day one, right? Um, I, I think I'm correct in saying that. Extraordinary. Yes. Okay, well, let's move on to uh, the potential for escalation of this and uh, particularly Israel's comments about Hezbollah. Yeah, well, I think the, the, the main point that I want to make, Mike, is of course, you know, people should not assume that Israel is acting alone. What we're seeing, particularly between the US and Israel, is a kind of good cop, bad cop routine, um, with the US behaving as if it's trying to restrain the savagery of Israel, while in reality, of course, behind the scenes, the US is actually driving the escalation. And so what we've seen recently, we've seen um, Hezbollah in the north of the occupied territories basically trying to contain um, this escalation and to basically run a tit-for-tat war to occupy uh, Israeli militaries to prevent uh, the full-on military push into uh, Gaza and the West Bank. So what we've seen recently is uh, the uh, Minister of Defense, Yoav Gallant, will push Hezbollah beyond the Litani River before residents of northern Israel return home, because, of course, many of the settlers in the northern occupied territories have been basically forced out of the settlement. So what's he referring to? Because people might not understand that terminology. UN Security Council Resolution 1701, which ended the second Lebanon war in 2006, this is from Israeli media, um, barred Hezbollah from maintaining a military presence south of the Litani, which is located some 30 kilometers north of the Israel-Lebanon uh, or Palestinian-Lebanon border. Hezbollah has blatantly violated that resolution, but so has Israel, both uh, violating Lebanese and Syrian airspace and uh, putting uh, military uh, installations right on the blue line. Um, so basically what Israel is trying to do is to invoke uh, the resolution 1701 to push the Hezbollah uh, armed uh, militia back beyond the Latani River, which is ridiculous because Hezbollah has long range uh, missiles throughout Lebanon, including north of the Latani um, River. So in, in reality, it's going to achieve nothing. Just for people to have an idea what this means, this is a map of the blue line that was established as part of Resolution 1701 at the end of the 2006 war, where really Hezbollah then was, was a relatively grassroots resistance group that still defeated Israel in that 2006 war. Israel has been escalating the strikes on uh, the most southernmost uh, towns in, in that area of Lebanon and actually killing a number of uh, particularly 
village officials and um, community leaders very much, of course, as they did in Palestine in 1948 during uh, the Nakba. Um, and if we just move on, I just wanted to very quickly talk about, uh, sorry, I, I forgot about this, Netanyahu has also reiterated this claim saying to Hezbollah, if you attack, we'll turn Beirut into Gaza. If Hezbollah chooses to start an all-out war, then it will single-handedly turn Beirut and southern Lebanon, not far from here, into Gaza and Khan Yunus. So these threats, again, I want to reiterate these. These threats are not coming only from Israel. They are being pushed um, by the U.S. to escalate regionally. Now, just a very quick look at the military situation in Gaza, and I think this is quite interesting. This was by um, an, an ex-account called uh, War Mapper. They're quite worth following. I'm not sure where their allegiances lie, but they're doing good work on mapping uh, the, some of the conflicts, including Ukraine. But what they're showing here in this map and the next one, um, Mike, you can just move on, is that the weather IOF is moving into territory, particularly into southern Gaza, it's basically committing itself to a very dangerous position. They've already withdrawn from the north, from Al-Fallujah and the north and west Jabalia camp. So in the north, they're being pushed out by the resistance. But you can see here in Khan Yunus that has been supposedly, it's supposed to be a safe area in southern Gaza, according to the Israelis that push the Palestinians out of the north. Um, and but, but what you'll see here is that the, the army is committing itself, the Israeli army is committing itself to further incursions to the center of Gaza, which leaves itself open to resistance attacks, which we're seeing. We saw a number of officers killed in the last few days. And it also means that the Israeli Air Force is not as able to indiscriminately bomb those areas because, of course, its own forces are on the ground there. So um, speaking with Scott Ritter last night on an interview, he agrees with me that this potentially uh, lays the way open for the IOF to be buried into a quagmire inside Gaza itself. Okay, thank you, Vanessa. Uh, let's uh, move on to COP28 then. And, uh, well, uh, here they all are standing there. They are united, they claim. They, are, they have acted, they say. Uh, and uh, they have delivered. Well, we'll be looking at whether they have delivered, uh, if you'll excuse the pun, in a minute. Uh, but before we do that, uh, what was being discussed on the sidelines, Charles? Well, on the sidelines and in the rhetoric, in the, in the lead up, we've heard plenty this year about alarmism on top of alarmism, where the climate is concerned. We now know that we've entered the era of global boiling and all the rest of it. So it seems to be time to bring out from the recesses of the drawer of emergency measures ideas that haven't really been given any ground in the mainstream narrative. And one such is the idea of cooling the, cooling the world by what's called solar radiation modification, or SRM. So we see here from the Scientific American, before, just before COP started, or at least a couple of months ago, October, it's time to engineer the sky. Global warming is so rampant that some scientists say we should begin altering the stratosphere to block incoming sunlight, even if it jeopardizes rain and crops. So straight away, we've got the idea that there is harm in suggesting this, and yet it continues to be discussed. This is about the Overshoot Commission from Climate Home News back in June of this year. And they say that SRM won't protect the planet from rising greenhouse gases, but only temporarily offset some of the warming caused by climate change. 
acting as a band-aid rather than a cure. Opponents argue it's a distraction from addressing the root causes of climate change and offers polluters an avenue to avoid taking climate action. So we have to think about what actually it is. And it's, it's said to be inspired by volcanic activity in that volcanic emissions, particularly the sulfur dioxide content, is supposed to reflect particles, well, with reflective particles, supposed to reflect the rays of the sun back and therefore cause cooling underneath, therefore at ground level. Um, even the European Parliament has got in on it, de declaring a, a resolution before the COP28. So we see here the motion for a resolution, the text of which talks again about the harms of it. So it's this enormous sort of raft of contradictions in that they talk about it uh, artificially reflecting sunlight and cool the planet, such as stratospheric aerosol injection, which is what I meant about the sulfur dioxide. They stress that it does not address the root cause of climate change and it is not an alternative to mitigation efforts. They note that there's a lack of scientific certainty and there's concern about global risks and adverse impacts, but nonetheless, they have put a statement out about it. They also talk about they, they don't want there to be a UN resolution on global government uh, and that the the Commission and the member states should initiate a non-use agreement at international level. We'll come back to that because it is important to think about the, the international context of this and the fact that it's being considered at world level or at least at country level. So we'll now go back to the Overshoot, what's called the Overshoot Commission, and they've produced a report shown on the screen here, reducing the risks of climate overshoot. Climate overshoot is the term that's been used to describe what happens if the world's temperature in, in mean average terms increases beyond a certain point and what could or should be done to mitigate that. So again, they talk about solar radiation modification, describing it again as controversial, but that scientific research is in its early stages and it's far from supporting informed decision making about their non-use. Government discussions, governance discussions are in their infancy. Inclusive international dialogue should be initiated as soon as possible. So we seem to have simultaneously this message that it's, it's something that's probably not going to be very good, but we should discuss it anyway. And just to go into a bit more detail, this is what the Overshoot Commission actually has to say about the practice itself. So take note. Reflecting sunlight would not address the cause of global warming as it would not affect the levels of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. It could not substitute for emissions cuts. Furthermore, SRM would not be capable of fully restoring previous climate conditions and could result in unwanted regional climate changes. Poorly planned deployments, for example, using SAI in only one hemisphere might lower global temperatures overall, but could exacerbate climate change in some regions. SRM would also involve environmental impacts such as delayed recovery of the ozone layer health impacts from particulate matter, sorry, I think there was a comma there that I missed, health impacts from particulate matter and increases in acid rain. SRM would not address the increased ocean acidification caused by the elevated atmospheric CO2 concentration. So having read that, I think you'd be forgiven for thinking it was a complete disaster and shouldn't be getting out of the blocks for any further discussion. However, the, uh, the Climate Overshoot Commission go on to say 
To be clear, the Commission believes that SRM is not an approach that should be relied on or cited in any form as a reason to slow the urgent acceleration of emission cuts. At the same time, the Commission rejects going too far the other way, that SRM should not be discussed at all, that research should be halted or governance discussions put on ice. Now, can I just say that research should be halted implies that research is going on at the moment? It, it does, absolutely. And I think that's, that's a point very well worth making. But you, you might be thinking that this is ringing a vague bell in terms of the messaging, putting, putting the suggestion out there that something's really very damaging. But because we're so far gone in terms of the emissions and the damage that that's been doing to the environment and indeed the, the warming of, of the, the earth, that something else should be looked at. And that, this is where we come to the behavioral psychology aspect of it. So we'll just put on the screen now an academic paper from Scientific Reports, the title of which is Exposure to climate change information predicts public support for solar geoengineering in Singapore and the United States. Solar geoengineering being the, the sort of the overall term for SRM and the strategic aerosol injection, as well as other uh, terms. But text from this says, the points above align with secondary risk theory, an extension of protection motivation theory stating that people favour risk reduction interventions they perceive to be implementable and effective, while opposing those they believe are too expensive or risky to deploy. Scholars have used that theory in the context of pandemic response and vaccine hesitancy, terrorism countermeasures, critical infrastructure risk assessment and urban development and vulnerability and it could be usefully applied in the context of SAI. So there we have it. It is being looked at in terms of effectively nudge. If we, if we suggest it enough and we make enough of a fuss about the existing measures failing and there being enough alarmism around it, slowly but surely the pendulum will swing. And therefore we look to the future. Who else has a stake in this and where do we turn? When we want to see what's going to happen next, well, lo and behold, SRM Youth Watch, a group that examines this at, at the younger, uh, for the younger generation. And taken off Twitter here, we have a screenshot which does link to a video. I'm afraid there's not time to show the video, but I will show it in News Extra. But it, it features Thelma Krug, the, the former vice chair of the IPCC. And in a nutshell, in describing the potentially catastrophic effects of solar radiation modification. She says that there could be benefits, but the key thing here is that she says if it is to be done, it would need to be done for at least 100 years, and that to stop it in advance of that period could be utterly catastrophic. So here we are faced with this effective sort of cliffhanger of, well, all else looks to be failing. It looks like our, our last chance, so we should do it. But if we do, we absolutely have to stick with it. Now, we've looked at examples from around the world, from the periphery of COP28. It was discussed there in some forum, uh, the details of which haven't yet been published, but I will be able to come back to that in due course. So as a, as a parting uh, note, if you're thinking that this isn't being considered in the UK, then it most certainly is. So we'll just finish with a Sorry, I've just got to go back a, a little bit, actually. Um, just on, sorry, on one to the, the regulation that surrounds this. And 
In the first instance here from UNEP, the United Nations Environment Programme, we've got regulation in effect from 1977 suggesting that the only way in which weather modification would be done was as an instrument of warfare. Now that's been updated now. We've got international treaties going back to 1992, at which point we note that lack of full scientific certainty should not be used as a reason for postponing such measures. We go on to 2022 and we see that there's now a request for a report on the impact of new technologies for climate protection on the enjoyment of human rights and to submit the report to the Council at its 54th session. Again, details of which are not yet forthcoming. Um, now, beyond that, we have the conclusion here again, this contradiction saying that it's no substitute for emission reductions and yet still it's, it's there as a suggestion out in, in, the, in the main arena now. Um, and you might be thinking at this point that this therefore can't have happened given the regulations surrounding it and the theoretical nature of the discussion. So let me introduce you to Make Sunsets, a small business which have been operating out of Mexico and are yet to be shut down. But they describe in their report published recently that they've launched 33 balloons with sulfur dioxide and they say they've offset nearly 6,000 tonne years of warming. So in effect, what they're doing is they're selling global cooling. And this goes back to the finance of the whole thing. And it coincides with the, certainly in the UK, the crash of the sort of carbon credit system and the devaluing of that. But perhaps there's a market now in, in global cooling tokens. So they describe here that they use latex balloons that they send up with sulfur dioxide. And in a sense, the balloon bursts and uh, it, it releases sulfur dioxide. They have no way of measuring it, what they're doing. Apparently, there doesn't seem to be any regulation to prevent them from doing it. So in effect, if you're a private enterprise and not a nation state. There, there seems to be nothing to stop you from doing this. And as I was just touching on earlier, if you think this isn't happening in the United Kingdom, or at least isn't being considered, I'll just close with a slide off the Met Office website, which again talks about it being very controversial and all the rest of it. And it says that it might have hazardous, um, reducing hazardous climate extremes, but there could be complex and significant drawbacks. And again, finally, like Thelma Krug said, in addition, it is likely there would be rapid climate change if SRM were terminated in an uncontrolled manner. So it's being put out there, it's more and more in the mainstream, and the timing is very, very interesting. We will see what happens next. Indeed, but coming back to COP28 itself then, of course, they were very excited uh, that they had apparently passed the resolution and uh, they decided to give themselves uh, an applaud there. Uh, isn't that great? Uh, so let's have a look and see what they actually said in their communique. Uh, so they said that uh, they further recognise the need for deep, rapid and sustained reductions in greenhouse gas emissions in line with the 1.5 degrees C pathways. And they call on parties to contribute to the following global efforts in nationally determined manner taking into account the Paris Agreement and their different uh, national circumstances, pathways and approaches. So this is a call uh, on people to do this. Uh, it's up to them whether they do it or not. Uh, so they're calling on people to contribute uh, with the following global efforts, tripling renewable energy capacity globally and doubling the global average annual rate of energy efficiency improvements by 2030. So that's more windmills and solar panels, less food production, therefore, uh, and uh, colder winters for everybody. Uh, accelerating efforts towards the phase down of unabated coal power, which of course is really uh, detrimental for developing countries in particular. 
uh, accelerating efforts uh, globally towards net zero emission energy systems, utilizing zero and low carbon fuels well before or around or by around mid-century, uh, transitioning away from fo fossil fuels. Remember, these are call. This is a call on people to transition away. This isn't a legal, legally binding requirement or anything like that. So transitioning away from fossil fuels and energy systems in a just, orderly and equitable manner. Uh, and accelerates lots of accelerationism going on. So they want to accelerate zero and low emission technologies, including uh, abatement and removal technologies such as carbon capture, utilization and storage. Uh, and they want to accelerate and substantially reduce non-carbon dioxide emissions globally, including particularly methane emissions by 2030. So that's attacking the farming industry again in particular and accelerating the reduction of emissions from road transport on a range of pathways, including through development of infrastructure and rapid deployments of zero and low emission vehicles. Um, so what is uh, really going on here? Of course, what this communique does is it allows developing nations uh, to continue to do what is, whatever they like. Uh, it allows China to continue doing whatever, it's, whatever it likes and Russia and so on. But in the West, where we are uh, pushing hardest on this, policy of net zero. Of course, it allows us to uh, require that we stop using petrol-driven cars and diesel-driven cars, and we switch off our uh, gas and coal-fired power stations and replace them with windmills and so on. Uh, and uh, of course, this is all about leveling up. Uh, and so if we look at uh, the UK government's uh, policy papers on this, this is uh, going back to April this year, powering up Brit Britain net zero growth plan, uh, and they're talking about exa exactly this. Ahead of COP28, we'll need to revitalize efforts to keep 1.5 degrees C in reach, including in pushing, uh, pushing for emissions peaking before uh, 2025. Uh, our transition to a green and sustainable future will provide new opportunities to grow and level up the UK economy. So look, this term has been used so often, uh, it's been pushed extremely hard in the UK. Let's just understand what it means. This is what uh, leveling up the definition in the dictionary, the practice of improving standards in one place, area of activity, et cetera, so they're the same in another place. Well, of course, what we're actually looking at here is uh, the great corporate uh, parent, if we just put that back up on screen, who's the guy on the left who moved the, uh, the seesaw to the horizontal position. He's pulling down us little children. We don't deserve any kind of standard living. We're leveling up standards of living across the world by bringing Western standards of living down to a level uh, which is the same as other countries in the world. We're not necessarily wanting other countries to develop uh, and bring their standard of living up. So that's what leveling up is about, really. Um, so uh, I just mentioned to, to end, of course, what's the effect of that on Britain's economy? Well, of course, we are shrinking. So we are looking at, like heading back into recession at this point. Um, and uh, well, that's the result of COP28. Uh, let's move on. If you like what the UK column does, you'd like to support us, uh, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, your membership there very much needed. Uh, uh, you could pick something up at the UK column shop. Uh, but please do share anything you find on the various platforms, uh, especially ukcolumn.org uh, and ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. And we'll just mention a few of the things you could be sharing uh, now. So first of all, tomorrow, 1 p.m., uh, an interview you did with John Cook. Yeah, which I really would uh, absolutely urge everybody to listen to, regardless of whether you've ever set foot on a farm or not. John Cook is a very, very knowledgeable, enthusiastic and determined raw milk and organic beef farmer in Wiltshire. 
And what he doesn't know about food security and where and how to produce food in the best possible manner is not worth knowing. So amazing insights into human health, animal welfare, the great challenges faced by farmers, and critically, how farmers and communities can have really strong and helpful relationships. Good. Okay, so that's 1pm tomorrow, uh, ukcolumn.org slash live and the other usual places. Uh, I want to mention that we've put up uh, Cheryl Granger's work on uh, the Pfizer-Moderna documents analysis uh, that uh, has been done by the Daily Cloud. So she's done a summary of this. Uh, it's a fantastic resource. So please do have a look at this uh, on the UK Column website. You'll find it on the front page. Uh, at each of the uh, each of the uh, Daily Cloud reports has a, a summary there that you can go and have a look at and then a link through to the uh, respective report. Uh, yesterday, we at 1pm, we pr uh, premiered the interview that I did with uh, Clifford uh, Kirikoff on Christian Zionism. Uh, that's on the UK Column website at the moment. And another article that I want to highlight on there is uh, uh, Johnny Vedmore's recent article on Pablo Miller, who is, uh, well, MI6 uh, was most, if, he, if he's famous at all, which he isn't, but anybody that's come across the name will have done so because of his relationship to uh, Sergei Skripal, Skripal in particular. Uh, but uh, this is having a look at the people that Pablo Miller has worked with over the years extremely interesting article. Please share all of that uh, as widely as you possibly can. Now let's come on to policing issues. And Vanessa, we'll start with you and uh, the recent efforts by the Metropolitan Police to, uh, shall we say, dox uh, people that have been at the various Palestine protests. Yep. I mean, they are literally doxing. This isn't one of the doxing uh, tweets or posts, as they're now called. Um, but they have actually been photographing people and then asking the public for information on those people so that they can further investigate their alleged um, offences. Um, so this tweet uh, by them in the last couple of days, the pro-Palestinian protesters set off from Bank Junction. As the march formed up, officers identified a man with a placard making comparisons between Israel and Nazi Germany. He's been arrested on suspicion of a racially aggravated public order offence. So let's have a look at this. There were a number of placards that were picked up by the Metropolitan Police as being offensive. This image is of um, civilian captives uh, of the IOF inside Gaza. They were uh, kidnapped from inside displaced people, refugee centres. Uh, schools and areas where they had taken shelter from the bombing in the north in particular. Many of them have been identified as civilians, as teachers, as uh, local businessmen, uh, journalists. More than 86 journalists have been uh, killed since October the 7th by the IOF uh, forces. And I, I just started to look into it. Many people were tweeting out various images uh, relating to the image that you've just seen. But I actually looked at this on the Holocaust Encyclopedia, um, which talks about public humiliation, which I think, you know, uh, it can be compared uh, very easily to the scene that you've just seen inside Gaza. And if you look at the bottom, um, the second point there in the key facts, humiliating incidents were intended to embarrass individuals as well as to deliver or reinforce lessons about Nazi racial ideology and power. Well, I struggled to see 
why it is not justified to make that comparison. And a recent article in Mondavais, an Israel-based uh, media outlet, um, entitled, I used to think the term Judeo-Nazis was excessive, I don't any longer, by Jonathan Ophir. It's, it's an opinion piece. He talks about the late uh, Professor uh, Yeshayahu Leibovitz applied the term Judeo-Nazis back in the late 1980s when he referred to former Supreme Court Judge Meir Landau. He then says that basically at that time he thought it was, was a moral exaggeration. It was bad Palestinians were being tortured systematically, but somehow I thought we're not quite as genocidal as the Nazis. And then he says, but today I feel differently. Yesterday, Jerusalem's deputy mayor, Arash uh, King, tweeted a photo of over 100 naked Palestinians who were kidnapped by the Israeli military in Gaza, handcuffed and sitting in the sand. There are reports that many were actually buried in the sand for some time and were then uh, extricated. They were not left there until they died, but they were basically abused, tortured. Uh, King wrote that the IDF is exterminating the Nazi Muslims in Gaza and that we must up the tempo. If it were up to me, he added, I would bring four D9 bulldozers, place them behind the Sandy Hills and give an order to bury all these hundreds of Nazis alive. They are not human beings and not even human animals. They are subhuman and that is how they should be treated, King said. He ended by repeating Netanyahu's biblical Amalek genocidal reference eradicate the memory of the Amalek, we will not forget. And then if you think that this only began from the 7th of October, Eva Bartlett, a journalist, a colleague of mine and a dear friend, um, put on her Telegram channel today her experience, I think, back in 2008-9 uh, of similar uh, goings-on inside Gaza. And this was on 10th of July 2023 by Save the Children. Stripped, beaten, and blindfolded, new research reveals ongoing violence and abuse of Palestinian children detained by Israeli military. So I leave it up to yourself and to the audience to decide whether it is justified to compare what the IOF is doing to Palestinians, to what the Nazis did to uh, Jews, to communists, to Romanis, um, to, to any of the uh, minority groups. And therefore, to, to compare whether it's appropriate for the Metropolitan Police to be doing what they're doing, what's your view on yeah. that? Well, I think, I think the area of, um, of anything that's deemed to be aggravated, particularly when it concerns uh, race or religion, is it's very difficult and it's, and it, for police to interfere and therefore determine whether or not that is the case is, is endlessly problematic. But it's also one of those very subjective pieces of legislation which is open to so much abuse, both by police, but also by people who are portraying themselves as victims. Okay, so sticking with the police then, uh, yeah. what have you got on that? Uh, well, this is sort of broader brush, but um, going back to November last year, after the perennial debate as to whether it's at all necessary that anyone serving the police should hold a degree, whether or not it's related to policing, the then Home Secretary decided that she would score political points by saying that she would axe the requirement for a degree. And lo and behold, the, the wheel has turned. And on April Fool's Day next year, it will no longer be necessary to hold a degree in order to enter the police as a constable, nor will it be necessary to gain a degree whilst you're in service. So this shows the, the sort of headline from the College of Policing website. We'll just see how this compares with the sort of direction of travel in terms of education in the country. And this is from the most recent census, 2021, showing that 
the at the top there the data from 2011 uh, in grey and 2021 in blue. And essentially, the two sort of big changes are that uh, the number of people with no qualifications in terms of uh, academic levels achieved has gone down quite considerably, whereas the level of those with an attainment of level four or above has gone up quite considerably too. So the question really is how well are police matched to the task at hand? And there was much ado made about the recruitment or at least proposed recruitment of 20,000 new police uh, several years ago at the end of 2019, which has taken place over the last couple of years. This is a recruitment poster for it. Uh, And um, going back to that time when when Priti Patel was in office, they decided to to do this by putting £750 million up, uh, which therefore worked out £125,000 per recruit which was going to happen over the next three years. They described it, strengthening police numbers as being a priority for the government. And uh, that was going to happen over 2020, 2021. Well, we're now here at the end of 2023. So we'll look at the police workforce report for up to March of this year and see whether or not the target was hit. Well, miracles do happen. And Police numbers are now as high as they've really ever been, certainly since their comparable records began. So the headcount is uh, 2.4 greater than the previous peak, 2.4% greater than the previous peak. Also, they make much noise about 4 in 10 new recruits, 43% being female and 11% being ethnic minorities. We can look at this in sort of chart form across time to see how these were achieved. That's that's showing from April 21 up until March 23, a fairly even trajectory of increase in numbers. And again, slightly different format. Uh, this shows the overall number of police in service. So we have here a little bit of text from that report. Um, at March, 31st March 23, there were 53,080 female officers in post, accounting for 35.5% of officers, an increase since December 2022. This is the highest number and proportion of female officers in post since comparable records began. Now, that's all well and good, but what does this really mean? And this next graph, I know one can get lost in graphs and what they do mean, but I've put a a red arrow on the screen here just to point at the very bottom of it. And this is to do with the ages of people who've been recruited. So in effect, what's happened is that whilst overall numbers may have gone up, the greatest increase is of people who are under 26. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with having people in the police who are under the age of 26, but what it does mean, and this is a comment from the Police Superintendents Association, is that it, it effectively... It changes the overall balance of experience, which of course is so critical. So the statement here says, we've seen in the final year of the police uplift programme, recruiting the largest ever number of new officers into policing, replacing officers that were lost from the service as a result of austerity cuts. Whilst any influx of new officers is positive, this has posed challenges to members and the wider service as forces have worked to meet difficult recruitment targets, to lead and train the new generation and to prepare for the implications of a young and inexperienced workforce. So he's being quite diplomatic there, but really what he's saying is we've got a whole lot of young people who have absolutely no idea what policing is all about and what are they going to do and how are they going to do it and who's going to lead them. So we'll go next into how that matches with 
the overall crime picture. So we'll just bring on screen now from the uh, last report ending June this year, crime statistics. This is the overall trend in crime. I should caveat this by saying this is according to Home Office counting rules, which means that it's to do with a crime report and not necessarily definitive statement that a, that a crime has taken place. Nonetheless, we'll just go through quickly. Sorry, just before you do that, if we just come back yeah. to that, I noticed there was no crime at all between 2019 and 2022. If we look at the bottom right-hand corner of that, so during lockdown, yeah, that is nothing a, happened, is absolutely. that right? Well, that, that, and that actually, that's case in point about how, how reports can, of course, distort the overall picture. But that like, is exactly like Mike says, the little sort of bit of subtext there. Face-to-face -face interviewing was suspended because of COVID. I mean, that was one of the one of the many, many ridiculous sort of holdups in the in the judicial process. Uh, but we'll just go on. Antisocial behaviour, of course, talked about an enormous amount. But I've just drawn this one out because, in actual fact, it, it talks about a fifteen percent decrease compared with the pre-pandemic year, uh, and an eleven percent decrease from June twenty-two. So often, what one, what one's reading about in the headlines are not necessarily to be believed, especially when compared with the statistical analysis. What I'm going to bring on now is going back to the heart of it, which is how well are police matched to the task that confronts them. Now, this red arrow here points to crime by volume and right at the top, way out in front with nearly three and a half million recorded incidents is fraud, beating theft into second place only at 2.6 million. So. The point here is that in demonstrating that they have the ability to recruit 20,000 new constables and make a big fanfare about putting them on the street and now taking away the requirement for a degree, what use is that in countering fraud? Fraud typically is not conducted on the street and fraud is a very specialist area for police. So how on earth is this matching the requirement that the public has for, for policing? The second point to make, or the very big question to be asked, is that if fraud is such a big issue, how is it that people are swallowing a narrative that suggests that what we need to do as a society is to move further and further down the digital track into digital identity and digital currency? The suggestion that those are going to be proof, sort of somehow fraud proof is absolute fantasy. So the police, not only are they not going to be able to deal with that, but the, but the statistics demonstrate how vulnerable society is to the very thing that the government's pushing. I'll just close this segment with uh, the, the sort of the other side of the statistical picture, which shows how police levers have changed in terms of sort of demographics and numbers. So Whilst indeed the government may have hit their targets, I've just put an arrow on screen here to show that the latest statistics are showing that people who are retiring voluntarily, most of these in their probationary period, has more than doubled since 2019. And that's a very, very telling statistic. Recruitment's one thing, but retention is a completely different matter. And if police are unable to retain people who are supposed to have that leadership and experience quality, then one has to wonder what's next. Um, Vanessa, let's come back to you and, uh, well, Hollywood. Yes. Um, so Steven uh, Spielberg and the Shoah Foundation launches a project to document the, I, I will add there, the alleged unspeakable barbarity of October the 7th. So yes, Hollywood steps into the breach to, to further shore up um, the, the crumbling uh, Israeli propaganda that is 
day by day being dismantled as it is by this article in, again, Mondavi, so again, an Israeli media outlet, um, which says that the CNN report claiming sexual violence on October the 7th relied on non-credible witnesses, some with undisclosed ties to the Israeli government. It goes on and it points out in many of its articles at the moment that the authors of various reports are based in Palestine and have requested anonymity in the face of the persecution, violence and threats from Israeli authorities, which would put them in severe danger. Um, and so the article, then I recommend people go and read the whole article, but the CNN report re represents a serious breach of professional conduct, which we detail in this piece. The most concerning aspect of the report is the fact that every single witness and so-called expert in the CNN report proves to be either lacking in credibility or to have ties to Israeli government officials and institutions. A deeper examination of the report shows a series of manipulations and professional failures, including the fact that all the witnesses that the CNN claims to have found were featured in previous reports pitched and coordinated by the Israeli government, calling into question how much original reporting or fact-finding went into the CNN report. Their failure to adhere to professional and ethical standards of responsible journalism also raises questions regarding their possible complicity with a political campaign orchestrated by the Israeli Prime Minister's office to perpetuate unverified claims of mass rape and a larger effort to dehumanize Palestinians in order to justify the ongoing genocide campaign in Gaza. And what I have next is a video with Afshin Ratanzi of Going Underground, an interview with Yoss Balin, the former Israeli uh, justice minister, the former deputy uh, foreign minister. And what I want to point out here before the video plays, it's only an extract from the video. People can, can watch the whole frame uh, at Going Underground on Rumble, um, is the fact that, that Israel has no burden of proof. That is what clearly comes across in this interview. Israel feels no need to provide the world with evidence of the claims that they're making. So let's have a look at this. You know, 10-month babies whom they are, they are keeping for what? For what? Who does something like that? Nobody in the world. Well, regarding the October the 7th, what do you think of all this information that is slowly coming out, that the uh, sexual crimes were being, uh, evidence was being promoted by this group Zaka? I don't know who, who that is. It's, a, I understand, oh, founded by a, a rapist. Give me a break. I, I don't want even to argue about it. If people don't believe that these these poor women were hit and, and raped and whatever, I'm not in the situation to prove them that they are wrong. They don't want to believe, so they will not believe. But if they, the, the women they themselves appealed and said we were raped. Okay, but no, they, no, 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 no. But you know Tuval. <clears throat> but what do you make of Tuval Escapa, the from the security team for Kibbutz Biri, telling Haaretz Israeli forces killed Israeli Jews on October the seventh? The IDF called for aerial strikes that killed Israelis. Okay, maybe it is true, and uh, all the the uh, one thousand and two hundred people who were killed on the seventh of October were killed by Israelis. But why is that not on? Uh, it's actually in the Israeli press, but it's not in the press in okay. the United it States. Is, and I, I believe that it is 100% right. I mean, are you crazy? Please, please. Enough is enough for the Muammar Akbira. We killed ourselves. We raped ourselves. 
No, I, we invented something which... I don't think there was any evidence of rape on either side, isn't it? But there is okay, now evidence okay. that those, that's coming out. You know, I, I don't want to... I, of the, course, of course. Let's get to ISIS. To Let's get to... In such a debate. Let's get to ISIS, because you okay. mentioned... ...in such a dialogue that somebody, a lunatic in, in, in Zaka, believed that there was no rape. That there was no seventh of October. There was not such a. Oh no 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 they no no it no no they behind ISIS. Sure. What do you want me to say? They are cited as the evidence in British newspapers for the evidence for rape taking place in sexual crimes on October the seventh. Clearly, but let's okay. Let's go to Gaza right now. Let's go to Gaza right now. What do you think about Israel's isolation in the international community? Well, there the uh, former deputy. Yeah, I, I mean, that's just an extraordinary display. Interesting that Afshin uh, mentioned Zaka, which we talked about on um, Friday's news last week. Yes. Okay, thank you, Vanessa. Um, Charles, back to you. Yeah, I'll, I'll run through this very quickly and I'll just put on screen the logo and front page of a government body that you're unlikely to have heard very much about, and that is His Majesty's Government Communications Centre. They are the people that make the sort of Q branch gizmos and they're closely aligned with the Defence Science and Technology Laboratory, who of course are there to deal with all the cutting edge weaponry, including development of directed energy weapons and so forth. And there's been a, a sort of spewing out into the public sphere, some chat around HMGCC at the moment, not least because the BBC have been let in behind the scenes. And they show a photograph here of Hanslope Park near uh, Milton Keynes. And the narrative is that this is the place where Alan Turing worked and that we should all take great pride in, in what they've done for the nation and to very much cast them as, as sort of coming out from behind the shadows to act in our, uh, it, well, at least with a sort of benevolent end. Um, there's also a government press release which came out last, uh, last week saying that the body behind Secret Tech opens doors to expand engineering excellence and specifically and mildly alarmingly they say that their history with secret history of secret engineering work for national security is seeking to work with companies and universities more openly than ever before on technology projects to help keep the country safe. So we go into the detail of that again from the HMGCC website where they talk about co-creation. Now what they mean is that they're essentially looking with DSTL who I've just referenced for uh, a development in technology that will allow them to cooperate with other institutions. So they say staff safety is at the heart of the first tech challenge being officially launched as HMGCC co-creation. This current challenge focuses around telecoms technology, specifically the ability to carefully read enough information from an electronic SIM card to help keep track of deployed government employees in the interests of keeping them safe. They go on. With mobile telephone technology changing, HMGCC co-creation is now keen to engage with technical experts in companies or universities who can collaborate with them on different ways to gather IMSI identifiers from electronic SIM cards for the purposes of looking after staff welfare 
when operating overseas. So, as I say, having mentioned Turing in the lead-in and going through all the, all the various code-breaking bits and bobs that they've made over the years and putting a very positive spin on it, added to which they're now using language sort of, sort of safety and security, first of all, of their own staff, one has to wonder what else might be coming out of this organisation. And so with that in mind, I'll just go back to 2021 and we'll look at a piece from uh, Intelligence Online it's all about tradecraft, in which they cite uh, HMGCC's involvement um, in countering espionage from Beijing with the headline, Britain's HMGCC looks to serve as bulwark against Beijing. The communication security agency, which develops gadgets for the intelligence community, is at the front line of efforts to counter Chinese espionage. And yet here we are, given an announcement by government uh, now and indeed the BBC but in actual fact, they're working in the interests of our safety. Um, Vanessa. Yes. Um, so I just wanted to end with, to some degrees, um, a positive note on the power of social media when in the right hands and the power of boycotts. Uh, this headline a couple of days ago, Zara pulls the ads with mannequin wrapped in white cloth after Gaza boycott calls. Let's have a look at the two really uh, horrendous images of bodies in shrouds, uh, so models surrounded by rubble, which was a clear um, allusion to, to what is going on inside Gaza. And why can we say that with some confidence? This is not the first time Zara has faced condemnation related to Palestine. Calls to boycott Zara were made last year after the fashion brand hosted a campaign event for far-right lawmaker Itamir Ben-Gavir. His meeting with Joy Schwebel, chair of Israel's Israel franchisee, Tremira, sparked a backlash with some people burning Zara items. In 2021, the brand's head designer, Vanessa Perlman, attacked Palestinian model Kohe Harash on Instagram in her hateful message. Uh, Perlman defended Israel's war crimes, reproaching the Palestinian people and the Muslim faith in her attack. So boycott works, social media campaigns work. Don't give up on the, on, on the sense of empowerment that we need to have right now. Yemen um, proving it also, um, not only has it now prevented ships entering uh, the Bab al-Mandab Straits there in uh, blue, Yemen in red, it is now threatening any ships heading to Israel with supplies. And yesterday it targeted a Norwegian ship that refused uh, to obey the warnings to turn back. And you can see from what uh, Yemen has achieved that the Israeli shipping or shipping going to Israel is now being forced to basically go around uh, the Horn of Africa. That's going to be costing billions. Of course, the war uh, against the Palestinians has cost Israel already uh, in the region of 50 billion. And I wanted to draw attention to, to this incredible case of censorship. Doc Malik, who has, um, I think he's on Substack, he's on YouTube. He has a sort of fairly regular um, podcast uh, and uh, interview uh, sessions. Um, and he's been suspended. Why? Because he interviewed, again, my dear friend and colleague, Eva Bartlett, who has spent probably the most extensive time of, of uh, any uh, Western journalist uh, around at the moment in Gaza and in the West Bank. Um, so basically, uh, Ahmed, Dr. Ahmed Malik, who's an orthopedic surgeon, has been suspended on the basis of complaints not from the public, 
but from uh, pro-Israel um, colleagues at the hospital. And as he says, we're in a situation worse than the Soviet era. Back then, you knew the state wasn't to be trusted and there were clear rules. Today, corporations act as arbiters of truth, serving as prosecution, judge, and jury. When doctors can't speak freely, there's no freedom, jeopardizing patient safety. And I think that's an incredibly important point to make. As a private surgeon with practicing privileges, it feels like I have the obligations of an employee without any of the benefits. Trusting doctors in the NHS and private sector is going to be challenging when you know that their careers are on the line for speaking out. How do we know if doctors are doing right by you and not, in fact, self-preservation? I think, Mike, we can say the same thing about our MPs. Uh, 100%. Okay, well, that is... Uh... A good place to, to finish for today. Thank you very much, uh, Vanessa, for joining us. Uh, and Charles, uh, we'll be back in a few minutes for some extra. Um, and uh, we'll see you then. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.